for Arizona Public Media. I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, real talk about living with autism from some folks in our community who have firsthand experience. And a conversation with novelist Craig Johnson, the creator of Longmire, about going down an art history rabbit hole to write his new book. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This week, the city of Tucson and a nonprofit called Intermountain Centers broke ground on a construction project designed to create a specialized sensory park near downtown Tucson. It's expected to take two years to build, but the creation of a dedicated safe space for children on the autism spectrum to play demonstrates the way that the stigma surrounding autism is breaking down and being overcome. And that's something the Autism Society of Southern Arizona would like to see more of. For the last 13 years, the Autism Society has held a fundraiser and resource fair in early spring. This year, the pandemic made that impossible. So after some regrouping and rethinking, the event is happening online on Saturday, September 26th. Here now are four guests, each of whom have ways of connecting some of the many pieces of the autism puzzle. My name is Bree Seward. I'm the executive director of the Autism Society of Southern Arizona, and I have a son who is diagnosed with autism as well as a nephew. Hi, my name is Jeff Vogan. I'm president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. We are the um, title sponsor of the Autism Walk or the Virtual Autism Walk this year. Uh, we really appreciate the work that they do at the Autism Society and are proud to be sponsors of this event. Uh, our daughter, Megan, is now 21 years old. She is on the autism spectrum, very low functioning, and she's taught us a lot about the issues surrounding autism. Hi there, my name is Hattie Groskind. I work at Social Venture Partners Tucson as our development and engagement coordinator, and I am on the autism spectrum. So I am also on the board of the Autism Society of Southern Arizona. Hello, I'm Diane Kent. I'm the program director for the program Advance at the Pima County School Superintendent's Office. Advance is a program designed to provide professional development for staff who work with students with disabilities. And my association with autism is I come to this position with 40 years experience in the public school setting as a speech pathologist and a special education administrator. And now I have the privilege to facilitate workshops to empower staff um, to better serve students with autism in the school community. At the beginning of the pandemic, I think we were all just scattered trying to figure out what you know, are we going to work? Are we not? Are the kids going back to school? So I have two boys, um, one with an autism diagnosis, and we have encountered so many new issues to navigate. So, um, you know, you've taken away school and then you have to figure out, are they going back to school? What does the summer look like? And just all those heartaches that happen in your life when you had all these plans, the oldest just loved football and you take that away. And then there's summer camps and there's, you know, time with cousins, time with friends, birthday parties. And you just slowly, you remove that from their life and you have to figure out what do we do? And, and I, I'm a single parent and I live with uh, my two parents who are over 70 and they have health conditions. So we really have to take extreme measures to keep our family safe. But through it, I've really shifted the perspective. And instead of saying, you know, oh, I'm so 
heartbroken that these things are not happening. I'm really trying to look at what is happening. And there's been a lot more time for us to be together, afternoons outside, playing basketball, you know, playing in the pool or playing catch a lot more often and sitting on the couch and watching, you know, game shows. I didn't watch game shows before. Now we love them. So I'm just trying to really shift and, and look at the good that's come through it rather than, you know, the heartbreaks that have set in. With my experience with working in the schools, one of the things that we're so sad about is we work so hard to have inclusive practices. And that can still happen online, but it's a different element, just like for everyone else. So for me as an adult on the spectrum, I'm working full time. I'm not being cared for by anyone. Um, but for me, what I've noticed is losing my schedule. And so for me, I've been thinking a lot about as an adult on the spectrum, you know, what could this have looked like if I was a kid? And just like Bree was saying, it would have been miserable because all of my favorite things would have been taken away. The things that got me out of the house, the things that got me out of my head, the things that, that allowed me to step out of a family space and into a space with people who don't see me at my worst, right? Because that's something that a lot of times we don't think about. Sometimes when you're at home, that's when your emotions are the wildest. Those are the people that you trust the most. And sometimes that means that inadvertently, you don't focus on your coping mechanisms because that's your safe place. But I think for me, what I think about a lot is how do we try and replicate those separate spaces and learning how to navigate moving from your family space into your school space. Um, I know for me, it's been really hard to work at home. And sometimes even things that are so simple, like washing dishes, takes me a couple days to get to because by the time I'm done with a full work day, staring at a screen but not talking to anyone else, it's completely draining. And it is the opposite of an ideal situation for me. However, I know other autistic adults who are complete introverts, and this is the happiest they've ever been. So that's something that's really been on my mind is, is this is a perfect timing example of you've met one person with autism, that means you've met one person. Everyone is going to have to cope differently through this, just like everyone who's not autistic. Yeah. And I just want to echo that as well, because I know for me, losing that compartmentalization, I've had to be pretty creative with that. And then if you're a person who likes that routine and relies on that routine, it really rattles things. I think that's been one of the biggest things that's been a difficulty for students at school too, is the shift in routine. And I've heard teachers saying that they're really working hard this year to make sure that some sense of routine is intact for students, even online, that that's the biggest thing that has been missing and has been so intentionally implemented back into learning online. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, Hattie, thank you for being a voice for, uh, <laughs> let me get emotional. Uh, if my daughter could talk, she would have probably said what you said. She's not verbal. She lives in a care home. She's 21 now, and she would have been able to stay in the private school until she was uh, 22, but very routine oriented. She gets up in the morning, she gets ready, she goes to school, she sees her teachers, she sees her friends. She has a routine, she doesn't speak much, she has about a 30 word vocabulary. She loves her little iPad, that's how she communicates and lives with the world. You know, the pandemic kind of shut that down and uh, she, she physically abuses herself. She puts her head through walls and things and because she can't explain what the heck's going on. And saying, you know, what happened to my world? They took it away. It's, you know, I, I like my routine. I don't know how to compartmentalize my life anymore. And, I don't know how to tell anybody what's wrong. And 
you know, they're, they're not taking me to the park anymore. They're not taking me out to get soda. And my routine is not, uh, is, is not like what it used to be. And it's, you know, we found some good resources to help her with that, including school, which now is non-existence. And they basically said, well, she's old enough. We're just going to force her to graduate. She doesn't get to come anymore. We've got to pair down and only take a few of the students that matter. It wasn't like, you know, too bad all students don't matter and too bad Megan doesn't have and, you know, because she's nonverbal, she's not being accepted into day program. She's not being allowed to come to certain uh, groups and organize the uh, uh, opportunities that other uh, kids with autism and even adults with autism have. Like somebody finally said what my daughter wished she could say. So thank you. I can share um, about the interactive resource fair. So knowing that that is such a key, if not the most important piece of the autism walk is getting those resources in the community that can help families thrive, um, we move those into an online space. So 2020autismwalk.com, all of those in-person resources are now going to live online and you'll be able to walk in their section, interact with it, receive brochures, receive the information that would have been there in person, still on the 26th. Um, Hattie, what about your observations about the importance of the social gathering that the walk and the fair used to represent? So it will happen again in the future. I'm optimistic about that. This, it's incredibly humanizing and hopeful. It allows you and your loved ones to really feel the support of a community in a way that you normally never do. Um, and that is something that is always I will hold in my heart um, of seeing people walk into the walks with their teams and their shirts. And it's the only place I've ever seen autism viewed by thousands of people in such a positive light all at once. And the beauty is with the online platform, the community's still rallying. You just don't have that powerful image of seeing 3,000 people. I think that's something that's so important because we provide as much as we can within the school community itself and school cultures and, and various teams you know, provide that in different continuum. But I think it's so important that families and individuals with autism have an opportunity just to connect with that community. And it also provides another way for us to connect with our communities outside of the school setting. You know, along the way, to learn how to deal with it, it was uh, organizations like Autism Society, uh, some groups through United Way and some other, um, you know, nonprofit organizations that my wife got involved with, you know, helped us understand that there are more resources than just, you know, families trying to go it alone. And uh, the world that these uh, kids with autism come from is, is different. And, and, and uh, like Hattie said, everything's individual. You can meet one autistic child and it isn't the same as another one. They might come from two different worlds that aren't ours. And we have to kind of understand how to, how to connect those worlds. And, and I think the uh, putting together resources where, you know, we have figured out little bits and pieces, you know, like the symbol of the puzzle. It is a, it's much bigger than just one or two pieces, but as we figure out each piece and how to put them together, we'll figure out the, you know, the answer to the building the puzzle of autism and how to deal with them and how to make their lives as best as we can and, and create a situation where our lives can be better because we understand how to take care of their needs. And yeah, I am, I'm a strong advocate of, of uh, organizations that are proponents of helping people get the resources they need. And that's why I'm a cheerleader, big cheerleader for, uh, for Autism Society here in Tucson. This is Hattie again. The people that made me the person I am, who is happy and functional, and uh, though I do want to put a caveat in, your functionality is not your worth. Just because capitalism says it is, your functionality is not your worth as a human being. And I think for me, it's the people who met me as a human. 
They didn't meet me because of my diagnosis. They didn't treat me because of my diagnosis. The people who literally were interested in interacting with me because I happened to be a person in their life. And those positive messages, while also keeping reality in check, I think were some of the foundations that really helped me get to where I am today. In addition, when you're talking to someone on the spectrum, regardless of whether they're a minor or not, if they're with a caretaker, talk to them first. Talk to the person first. It feels really bad when someone, a teacher, a doctor, whoever it is, looks over your head or through you to talk to your parent or caregiver. Even if the person's nonverbal, you still acknowledge them first. That's huge. Include people in conversations, even if they can't communicate back. They're in there. Their brain's working. They can hear you. And the last thing, don't talk negatively about people in front of them unless you're having a constructive conversation with them. It is the most painful thing in the world to hear your parents or the adults that you trust and love be talked to about your issues and your behaviors if you don't get a say in the conversation. My guests were Bree Seward, Jeff Fogan, Hattie Groskind, and Diane Kent, representing the Autism Society of Southern Arizona. The Society's 14th Annual Autism Virtual Walk and Interactive Resource Fair with exhibitors and live discussion panels is happening online Saturday, September 26th. Information, registration, and ways to donate are all available at asaz.org. You can also hear more of this roundtable discussion on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. How does a middle-aged Wyoming lawman and single dad keep his chaotic life in balance? Author Craig Johnson says that his hero, Walt Longmire, often doesn't, and that's half the fun of writing about him. I first interviewed Craig Johnson back in 2013, just as his mystery series was premiering on television, bringing his characters to a very receptive worldwide audience. After six successful seasons, Sheriff Walt Longmire's TV journey came to an end, but his fictional home of Absaroka County continues to thrive on the printed page. Next to Last Stand is a change-of-pace mystery about history and art, and it's coming out next week. We'll find out how the Poisoned Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale is helping Craig Johnson to celebrate. You know, of course, there are varying degrees of response from authors who've had work done um, by Hollywood, going all the way back, you know, to, to Faulkner and Hemingway and a lot of the others that, like, you know, really weren't happy um, with what it was that got produced an awful lot of the time. But uh, I was just extraordinarily fortunate. It was a really wonderful group of producers. Um, the actors are, you know, just absolutely fantastic. I mean, they, they actually became very close friends. Um, I mean, we have this thing called Longmire Days, you know, where we have the entire cast 
uh, come up to Buffalo, Wyoming, a little town of, you know, 5,000 people, and they bring along, you know, 15 or 20,000 of their closest friends. And uh, <laughs> it, it's a wonderful event, you know, and, uh, you know, it hasn't lost any of its uh, its enthusiasm over the last, you know, what we've been doing, I guess, now for um, coming up on 10 years next year. Yeah. I mean, even in times of duress, you know, such as we're going through right now, I thought it would be interesting, and I asked the actors if they would be willing to do readings from the upcoming book, Next to Last Stand. And so they did. Almost all of them um, did readings. And so with all of the book events I'm going to be doing on tour, it's kind of fun like that because a good friend of mine, Marcus Red Thunder, from up on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, you know, helped me produce these videos of like the little bighorn of, you know, the bighorn mountains of the soldier and sailor's home, you know, here in Buffalo, all of these things. And so I can I can probably maybe let the cat out of the bag actually with you. Um, it looks as though I'm going to have co-stars, you know, with me um, in all of the Zoom conferences mm-hmm. um, that I'm going to be doing. Um, and I believe that I believe Robert Taylor, who plays Walt Longmire, is going to be my co-host, you know, at the Poison Pen. Yeah. So let's just quickly remind everybody: this is a virtual event, so you can <laughs> you can attend it from the privacy of your own home. Exactly. So. Um, when we first talked in 2012, I asked you a goofball question, and you you didn't really have an answer, and I don't blame you. But now we're dealing with an older and a wiser gentleman, oh so boy. I'm going to pitch this question at you again and see what okay. happens. Okay. All, All right. right. I'm ready. Your identity is very much connected to the state of Wyoming. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between a Wyoming cowboy and an Arizona cowboy? Sweat. That would be number one. Um, one of the things you notice right off the bat is, is the majority of Wyoming cowboys can wear their felt hats all the way through the summer. You know, I spent you know an awful lot of my youth, you know, as a as a cowboy in the Wyoming, Montana, in the High Plains uh, areas, like it. And so, you know, the boots that I wear, uh, the clothes that I wear, the hat that I wear, they're kind of like emblematic, you know, of our specific region. Um, and it changes. Like, and I, I, you know, what I wear is generally the Powder River Country, you know, kind of look of, of a cowboy. Um, but, you know, the tack and equestrian stuff that you use, like, that's always different, too. You can pretty much get a good idea of where a cowboy's from, you know, just by one quick look. You know, you'll get one quick look, you can tell. I've gotten more keen in my, my abilities to be able to do that because I've spent a lot more time in a lot of different places now, whereas, you know, I mean, come on, I'm a, I'm a cowboy writer from a town of 25. I don't get out much, and here in the last year, I haven't got out at all. Like it, It's always an opportunity to kind of raise my awareness. Well, look how deftly you handled that question now. <laughs> you, no flies on you. Okay. That's, very, that's very kind of you, Mark. I appreciate that. Well... Okay, let's talk about the new book for a second and, and the, the way that it's different from the previous stories. I love art heist movies. <laughs> I, I've read a couple of books. There's a, there's a cheesy old paperback called The Man Who Stole the Mona Lisa. That's uh-huh. one of my guilty pleasure mystery okay. novels. So I wonder what led you to decide to do an art heist. I would also <laughs> like to know why you chose the painting Custer's Last Fight as the center of this novel. You know, I, I started doing a little bit of research, like and I, you know, I'm always, you know, collecting, you know, as the years go by, you know, whether it's newspaper articles, you know, or you know, magazine articles or whatever. And there was an essay um, that Norman MacLean, um, the author of A River Runs Through It, did um, about uh, Cassili Adams and the painting, you know, Custer's Last Fight. 
And I think he was doing it as research for a book that I don't think he ever got around to writing. Um, but it just intrigued me like that because, you know, the history of this painting, as I started doing the research, you know, became almost as dramatic as, you know, the historical point in which it displays. Most people have never heard of Cassili Adams, but I can just about guarantee you that they've seen Custer's Last Fight. One of the main reasons being that, you know, the, the uh, Anheuser-Busch, you know, Budweiser, like that, had bought that painting from a, a defunct uh, saloon in St. Louis, like that, and started making posters of it in an attempt to try and go from being a small regional brewery into being a more of a national brewery. And at, at that so point around, in time in around what era? Hold on, Professor. I interrupted you, and you were just about to say what I wanted to know, so it's classic. <laughs> That's quite all right. <laughs> but around, like, the 1890s, we were kind of going through a period in time when the country was was changing, um, and there was a much more of a homogenous, you know, kind of opportunity for a lot of, of nationwide promotionals, you know, where they could, you know, do the Burma shave ads, where they could do, um, you know, kind of push, you know, uh, you know, soaps and things like that on a national scale. And up until that time, you know, all advertising had been kind of regional like that. And so, you know, Anheuser-Busch was in an attempt to try and like, you know, move from being, you know, a small regional brewery and being a, um, a larger and more national brewery like that. And so um, when Augie Bush, you know, walked into that defunct saloon and bought that painting, which was a huge painting, it was like 16 and a half feet by nine and a half feet. Um, they couldn't pay him the $30,000 they owed him for the beer they had you know, purchased. Like it. And so he took the painting instead, took it back up to the brewery and said, hey, we're going to make posters and lithographs, and we're going to send these things out to anybody and everybody out there in the country and all over the world. And by the time we're through, we're going to be a lot bigger brewery than we started up. And by golly, it worked uh, with a vengeance. You know, it worked. And uh, they did this for, like, I don't know how many decades, you know, between the wars, um, and then finally, after World War I, they decided in a fit of philanthropic zeal that they would make a gift of the actual painting um, to uh, the 7th Cavalry. And so this poster was on every saloon, every bar, every restaurant all over the country, and still, you know, is. Um, I think the best way I've heard it described is, is that it's, you know, been the most viewed by questionable inebriated art critics than any other piece of artwork you know, in American history. <laughs> but it finally came to rest there at the 7th Cavalry's uh, headquarters in uh, Fort Bliss, Texas. Um, and in 1946, um, a terrible tragedy happened, you know, and the, uh, the, the commissary burned to the ground, and the painting was destroyed. Or was it? Um, and in my novel, we come to find out that it's a potential that the painting was not destroyed. And so when Charlie Lee Stillwater, you know, one of the veterans up at the Sailor and Soldier's Home, um, passes away, um, they, they find in his footlocker a portion of a painting, a study of a painting that looks familiar, but they're not quite sure what it could be, and a million dollars in a four-shine shoebox. And uh, <laughs> it kind of sets Walt off on his first art heist. And uh, it is, it's a little bit different from the things that I've done before. It's a little more lighthearted, um, even with some of the more serious aspects, you know, that take place in the book. It's, uh, it's a little more lighthearted, I think. I think there's a little bit of a metatextual reason for that, because you mentioned the last couple of Longmire books have been pretty serious. And then this is one where Walt gets to go down a rabbit hole. And right now, if anybody needs rabbit holes, it's the people in the United States. 
you are so on target. Look at it. It is absolutely what it is that he needs. That English major from USC before he lost his deferment and went off to Vietnam. Like that, I, I sometimes wonder if Walt wouldn't have been happier as a librarian or a bookseller or <laughs> you know a research librarian or something like that because he he really does love you know doing the research like that and it is it is such a wonderful you know rabbit hole to go down like that to discover you know what happened with that painting and what was involved with it. So Craig, how do you address the Native American perspective on this painting and its role in history? The biggest thing to keep in mind is that um, this was not two two armies, you know, evenly matched armies out on the battlefield. You know, this was a nomadic people. This was a moving city. This was, you know, an entire people um, who had, you know, their women, their children, their aged, you know, the sick, and they were attacked, you know, by an army. Like that was an attempt, you know, to try and like, you know, bring them in, you know, and uh, put them on the reservations. These guys had their backs against the wall. They were fighting not only for themselves, but also for a way of life that they knew in their heart of hearts, you know, was probably not going to last. Um, they kept waiting after that battle for the next, you know, footfall. You know, they knew that, you know, that the the power and weight, you know, of the entire American military and government, you know, was going to be coming after them. And it, it took longer than, you know, than they suspected, you know, but it did finally arrive like that. And uh, uh, there they were, a nomadic people, no longer with the ability to be nomadic. When I'm reading those, you know, those anthologies of the, the oral histories, there's an honesty to them, you know, a sadness to them. It's a voice, a voice that, that, that needed to be heard. Um, I remember standing there with my, my good friend, Charles Little Old Man, who's a Northern Cheyenne tribal elder and chief. Look at, and I, I remember making, a, making the foolish remark years and years ago that, you know, he said something about the battle. And I said, well, there, there weren't any survivors. And he laughed and he goes, why, Craig, there were, there were thousands of survivors. They just weren't white. Let's try to wrap it up by going back to home for you and okay. um, reminding everybody, of course, you know, we're still in the pandemic. So... When the order came to hunker down at home for you, Craig, I just would like to know how many people and pets and so forth make up the Johnson homestead. <laughs> not too many. Like not too many. Like that, we're a small percentage of the twenty-five um, <laughs> here in Ucross, Wyoming. Um, my wife and I, and a dog, and four cats, two horses. And, um, well, actually, and, and right now I can be honest with you and tell you that I've got a raccoon um, and a trap uh, <laughs> out here on the front porch. I have caught my 79th raccoon this year. Um, evidently, the cat food that I have for the cats in the barn and the tax shed is something they just simply uh, yeah. can't deny themselves. It's irresistible. So I have trapped and released 79 raccoons like in the last year. That'll probably be my next book about raccoon behavior. Oh, that'd be a good one. I <laughs> a like naturalist book about that. <laughs> some people call them trash pandas. I think that's yes, a pretty good nickname. Yes, they yeah. do. And they have personalities. I can tell you, after meeting up close and personal, about 79 of them, um, <laughs> they all have very definitive personalities. Like The one that's out on the porch right now is particularly vicious. Like it, And so I'm making sure I'm keeping my fingers away from the trap. My guest was the always energetic Craig Johnson. The Poisoned Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale presents Johnson and some of his TV friends as part of a virtual event next week to celebrate the release of the latest Walt Longmire novel, Next to Last Stand. It's happening on Tuesday, September 22nd, from 6 until 7 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. 
AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.